COVID, and now we have the opportunity to come before our God's Word, the Word of our King given to us to instruct us and to build us up and to help us to think rightly about the world in which we live in order to bring Him glory. So let's bow in prayer and ask for the Lord's blessing. I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 19, and we will look at that after our prayer. So let's pray. Father, it is a good and a a precious thing to be able to come into your presence. It is a privilege. It is an honor. It is something that... um, in and of ourselves, uh, we would never have been deserving of. And yet, because of your mercy and your kindness and your grace and your, um, your compassion towards us, you have made a way for us to come before your throne of grace and to come before you boldly and, and to come before you as those who are welcomed, to come before you not as those who need to make a way for ourselves by our good works, but as those who have been the recipients of one who has made a way into your presence, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming into this world to take our sin upon yourself, to live the life that we could not live, and then to die in our place, taking the judgment that we deserved. We confess, O God, that we are guilty in the lives that we have lived even in this last week, that we have not lived in a way that has been perfectly righteous and good and holy. We confess, O God, that we have sinned in our thoughts and in our speech and in our behavior. We confess before you, O God, that we bring that sin into this place looking and hoping and praying for forgiveness And we confess that we have received it in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he has removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. We thank you that he has taken every one of our sins upon himself and paid the price in full for them. Thank you for your pardon. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that makes us acceptable in your sight. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for raising from the dead so that we might have new life in you. That's why we come here this morning, Father. We come here because we are desperately in need of your grace and mercy, and you have shown it to us. We pray that this would be a day of salvation for those who are here this morning who have yet to know you that you would draw them to yourself through your word, that they might see and feel the weight of their sin as it lays upon them, and that they might see that there is a good and gracious Savior who seeks to take that away from them and put it on himself that they might live. May you make that truth known, Father, this morning to them. We thank you for the opportunity that we have been given through the work of Fidel and Tina, to bless these children who are stricken with cancer. And we ask that you would grant to us great opportunities to bless them through tangible gifts of of love, Uh, but most importantly, that the gospel would be brought to them, that they would see Christ as he cares for them and loves them, and that they would be drawn to him in faith, that they might receive the forgiveness of their sin and be reconciled to God. Bless Tina and and Fidel and keep them safe as they travel, Father, and may you grant them much fruitfulness in your name. We thank you now as we go to your word in Acts 19 and we ask for your blessing on it. Uh, We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that you would remove from us, Father, distractions of this world and the things that seek to carry us away, uh, whether it's concerns about politics or concerns about sporting events or what we're going to do tomorrow, Father, or whatever it is, just remove that from us and, and enable us, Lord, to set our hearts and our minds on you, to think on you, to meditate on your glory, on your goodness, 
uh, to be filled with joy and love and passion for the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might leave this place better equipped and more hungry for righteousness. We ask for you to do this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, last week, uh, we saw how God established a gospel foothold in Ephesus uh, through Paul's ministry there. Uh, from Ephesus, uh, the word of God continued to spread throughout the entire province of Asia. You see that in 19 verse 10. And there was the usual opposition and unbelief to the preaching of God's word in Ephesus that there, there has been throughout all of Paul's ministry um, if you have been with us up through Acts, you will notice that um, up until this point in Luke's gospel, um, in Acts, the pattern has been the same, and, and it's, it's kind of gone like this. Luke tells us Paul went to a city. Paul preached the gospel in that city. After he preaches the gospel in that city, opposition arises to the gospel. Some people believe, some people don't believe. And then Paul establishes the church and moves on. I mean, that's been the pattern, right? Preach the gospel, hear the gospel, believe the gospel, or reject the gospel. It's kind of been really near-term results. Uh, you see, you've seen this in Cyprus and Antioch and Pisidia and Iconium and Lystra and Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and in Corinth, and you see it here in Ephesus. However, in this section we're about to read, Luke does something a little bit different. He doesn't just summarize the near-term results of belief and opposition to the gospel, though he does that in chapter 19, verse 9. But he also tells us about the long-term results of the gospel in the city of Ephesus. That's what chapter 19, verse 11 to 41 looks at. And I think he does this because Luke sees, as we said last week, the opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingship and his gospel from the Hellenistic religions reaching its climax in Ephesus. And so what he wants to do is he wants to show that the disturbance due to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was not due to anything the believers did, but was due to the powerful transforming work of Jesus through the gospel of his kingdom. And this carried on for a long time. So when we come here to this section, Luke is saying, this, this is something that God did through his gospel, through the preaching of his word that took place in Ephesus for, he says, over two years by the Apostle Paul. So this is a two, two and a half, three year thing we're going to look at after Paul's ministry there, which is a little bit different than we have seen. Usually it's near term. This is two plus years later. And Luke wants to say, look at what God does through his gospel, even two to three years later, look at what's happening through the power of God's word. And in fact, the fact that he's emphasizing the power of God's word, if you were to look back at verse 9 in chapter 19, where Luke says, he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning, preaching, and preaching to them about the kingdom of God. When he says that, um, there's a footnote there in verse 9. In some manuscripts, it says that he taught in the halls of Tyrannus from the fifth hour to the ninth hour hour. I'm sorry, that is verse, yeah, verse 9. He says, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, 
reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. That means from the fifth hour to the 10th hour, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., over a period of two years, the Apostle Paul was bringing the Word of God to them. That is how revival comes. And so Luke wants to convey what happens when Christ, through the gospel of his kingdom, brings revival to the city of Ephesus and to an entire culture. When God, in his grace, brings a great spiritual awakening among people, what does that look like? And if I may put it before you this morning, as we go through this passage, you have to ask yourself, would you be ready for it? You know, we, we pray often that God would bring revival. We pray that God would make his word alive and impacting and changing lives. Do we not? We pray for that, and, and we rightly do. But in this passage, as I read it and studied it, part of me realizes that to be ready for this kind of revival means that it is going to have a direct impact on me and you and the world. And when I look at it, I desire it, but we have to be ready for it. And we'll see that as we go through it. So because we're going to see that when God acts to bring spiritual awakening on a grand scale in a short amount of time, which is what revival is, there's a great disturbance and the lives of many people will be changed such that their affections and their allegiance is realigned to be around the Lord Jesus Christ and their behavior is reordered in obedience to God's word. That's what it should look like and that's what we see here. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at this passage and we're gonna see the first thing that happens in a culture that is gonna experience spiritual awakening, because we are living in a spiritually dead culture. You do realize that. The United States is spiritually dead. What happens in a culture that's spiritually alive? The first thing that happens is, and we'll see this in verse 11 to 17, is that the name of Jesus is magnified. And the name of Jesus becomes feared among all the people. Not just, not just the saved, but the saved. But Jesus' name is respected, it's honored, and it's feared. This happens in revival. We are not in a period of revival here. The second thing that happens, and this is where it's going to come home to you and me. The second thing that happens is God's people are convinced of their sin. They confess their sin and they repent of their sin. This is 19 verses 18 to 19. And the third thing we'll see is that as a result of this, the world becomes disturbed by the presence of Christ and his people living among them. This is three marks of a revival. Christ is magnified, the church is purified, and the world is troubled. Let's read it. Acts 19, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, 
so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these things, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul was persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess, if, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with writing today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion." And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. That is the reading of God's word. 
And so you'll see here that Luke begins by telling us that what led to Jesus being feared and his name extolled among the people in verse 17, this is important, it was what God was doing through the hands of the Apostle Paul. Paul was doing what he had always been doing. Paul did not set out for a special revival in Ephesus. Paul did not plan some kind of revival tent meeting or event. Paul was being faithful. Paul was calling on people to bring, to come before the Lord Jesus to believe the gospel and to place their faith in Christ. But in this instance, God chooses to do what Luke says are extraordinary miracles by his hands. Now, a miracle is already extraordinary, right? I mean, a miracle is something that doesn't happen in the course of nature. It's amazing. But Luke says this is like extraordinary miracles. God chooses to do these miracles. God was doing them by the hands of Paul. And this was not normal. We, we like to think about miracles in the New Testament, and people are wondering, why aren't we seeing that today? Shouldn't we be seeing miracles in the same way today? And there are people that will go about claiming to have these abilities to perform miracles, but this is not even the norm in the New Testament church. These are, these are special occasions in which God does something extraordinary, and he does it for a purpose. And God does this through Paul in Ephesus at this time in order to, like he did every other time in the New Testament, because he wants to confirm the power of the gospel that Paul preached in order to magnify the name of Jesus. This was never the norm, but as Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, these miracles were meant to confirm that Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and to authenticate the gospel message that he was preaching, being a gospel message with power to save from God. That's what he writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And if you actually read that passage in Paul writes to the Corinthians in the context, you actually realize that Paul, as he writes that, is extremely troubled by it. He's actually, he actually tells them, you, you guys are being led astray by false apostles who are claiming to have these things from themselves, and, and you have forced me to write about these miracles, meaning Paul did not even want to address them. This is, this is how uncommon it was for him. This is how he viewed them. He saw them as an extraordinary work of God that was done for these particular purposes. And Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, he has to defend his apostleship and he actually says, he, he's embarrassed that he says it. He even calls himself in 2 Corinthians 12, 11, a fool for even saying it. This is how Paul viewed these, these miracles. Paul does not want to highlight this. This is not part of his normal, everyday ministry. And just as a side warning to you, beloved, you need to be aware, beware of people who claim to have healing ministries for themselves. Beware of people who go about on TV, on the radio, who are highlighting what Paul never wants to highlight in his ministry. I mean, shouldn't that tell you something? Paul doesn't even want to highlight it. 
He doesn't want it to take them away from the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to focus on the gospel, on Christ, on who he is. He doesn't even want to talk about it. And yet there are people that all they want to talk about is their healing ministry. They will heal you. They will make you well. They will give you health. They will give you wealth. They will give you prosperity. If you will just follow me and listen to what I'm saying, all of your wildest dreams would come true and you would be healthy, happy, and well. Paul says, no. This was something unusual and it's unusual because what God wants you to know is that the way to be healthy, happy, and good in life is ultimately to be forgiven of your sins and to be delivered from the wrath of God. And whatever happens in this life, whatever suffering you may go through in this life, your life is secure in the Savior. That's what Paul wants the people in Ephesus to know. So beware of people that claim that for themselves. And so here, Luke's emphasis is, not, is also not on the miracles. In fact, he only uses one verse in this entire section to tell us about the miracles. He says, what God was doing was so great, this is all he has to say, even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched Paul's skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. That's all he says. And he says it because he doesn't want you to focus on the miracles, but he actually says it because he wants us to see the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes right from saying that to explaining, this is what it's tied to, this is just a prelude to his main point. So he goes from that to telling us that there were seven sons of Skeva who were these itinerant, traveling Jewish exorcists. They were the sons of a Jewish high priest. And they tried to invoke the name of Jesus over evil spirits. So they said, wow, look at this Paul. And look at this authority that he is saying the name of Jesus and these people are being healed. He's preaching this name Jesus. These people are being healed and evil spirits are coming out. And so these Jewish exorcists, they say, well, let us do the same thing. Let us also speak the name of Jesus like a magic spell, which is what they did in Ephesus. And let's see what happened. And so Luke says, when these men, these seven sons of this Jewish high priest, tried to do the same thing, Luke tells us they had no authority. They had no power. Why? Because Christ was not with them as he was with Paul. They say... I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Do you see the one step removed? I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims come out of him. And the evil spirits basically say, who are you? Right? I know Jesus and his authority because they did. Remember, even in the Gospels, they said he is the Holy One of God. They identified him. They know his authority. They know his power. And this evil spirit hears this, these seven sons, and he says, who are you? I know Jesus and his authority. And then he says this, and I recognize Paul. He recognizes not the authority of Paul, but he rec they recognize Paul as belonging to Jesus who has all authority. And so Luke's point is to say that these charlatans, they had no authority, and rather than mastering the evil spirit, the evil spirit actually mastered them 
leapt out of the man onto them so that they were ashamed and they fled out of the house and they were naked and wounded. Now, if you had saw that happen and you, you saw some exorcist trying to do that and then the spirit leapt out on them and they became wounded and naked and crazy running around, you might do what they did there. Because the people looked at that in a very, in a very, in, in a kind of culture that is like saturated with the occult and spells and magic. The people looked at this, Luke says, it became widely known in the city to both Jews and Greeks, but Luke's point is in verse 17. That's his point. His point is this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That is at the heart of spiritual awakening. The name of Jesus was magnified, his authority was recognized, his power was evident, his rule and reign over all was clear and unmistakable, and the people in the world realized it. Spiritual awakening is not necessarily marked, is not marked by more miracles, more signs, and more wonders. Spiritual awakening is a recognition that Jesus Christ is king and he rules over all. What does the scripture say is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. True revival begins with a fear and recognition of the Lord Jesus Christ. That moves us to the second observation that Luke gives here. And this, like I said, is where I think it really comes home to us. Because it's one thing to say, I fear the Lord Jesus. It's another thing to live in a way that demonstrates that you truly fear and reverence the Lord Jesus. If Jesus is feared and extolled among the people, if the gospel is then at work in us as his people, what does that look like? If the people feared God rightly, they would, those who fear God rightly respond to God rightly. Those who fear the Lord are on the path of living a life that is pleasing to him. And so what does that look like for us who claim to fear the Lord Jesus, who claim to want to follow him? What does revival look like? Or do we just think of it as something that pagans need to respond to out there. Does that make sense? So when God brings spiritual awakening, there is a direct impact on the church. Jesus doesn't only confront paganism in the world, but he also confronts it in his church. Just think back, we finished reading all those letters in Revelation today. Jesus cares about the impurity and ungodliness in his church. And there are seasons where the church is going to be living, such as the season that we're in now, where there is no great revival and spiritual awakening. 
and the church is going to be filled with sin and paganism and unrighteousness. But when revival comes, when true, God-given, spirit-filled revival comes, it impacts even the church. Sinclair Ferguson, who you know I respect and I love listening to his preaching and reading his books. Um, I was listening to one of the sermons he, he was giving on, on this passage. And I think he put it as good of a, in a way that I, I could put it. He says this. Eventually, under the power of the gospel, there are believers who have been hiding things in their closets. And whenever there is a true spirit-given awakening, you will discover that believers bring things out of their closets. Many believers in many churches have many things in the closets of their lives that should not be there. But because the atmosphere of our Christian life and our Christian churches and our Christian worship is so tepid, it's possible for these things to remain in the closets of their lives. But when the Holy Spirit comes in this kind of power, then believers who have things hidden in their closets want to have spring cleaning in their closets. And that's what we see here. You'll notice in verse 18, Luke says, also many of those who were now believers. Not many who now just became believers, but many who had already come to Christ, who had already placed their faith in Christ and were living their Christian lives, many of those who were now believers also came because they recognized the righteousness and the glory and the fear of the Lord Jesus Christ rightly. And these Christians in Ephesus, they became convicted of their hidden sins. They confessed their hidden sins and they repented of their hidden sins. They realized that they were holding on to something that the Lord Jesus Christ, in all of his glory, was looking down upon them, and they were no longer able to hide it. They could not store it away. They could not keep it hidden. All of the magic books that they had, all of the spells that they had, all of the idols that they had hidden in their closet, when the Lord Jesus Christ magnified his name in Ephesus and made himself known and God acted to change the people in that city, the people of God responded rightly. And they turned from all of the wickedness and the sin that they had been hiding in their lives. They made a clean sweep of their closet and they reoriented their thinking and reordered their life to the glory of God. They wanted nothing more to do with those sins to such an extent that what did they do with the books? They burned them. They burned them. They said, I want nothing more to do with this unrighteousness that is a part of my life to such an extent that I, we are going to burn it and we don't care about the cost. In fact, Luke says, 
when they counted the value of all of the books that they had burned, they found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. 50,000 pieces of silver. If a piece of silver, as some say, refers to one denarii, which is the equivalent of one day's wages back then, then that would have been the value of 137 years worth of labor, seven days a week with no time off. That's millions and millions of dollars worth. But you see, for these believers, they couldn't care less. Because for people that follow the Lord Jesus Christ, they realize that they cannot serve two masters. They cannot have two feet, one in the kingdom of this world and one in the kingdom of heaven. You cannot have two competing loyalties in your life if you are to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You can't love Christ and this world. You can't love money and God at the same time. You can't love your sin and love the righteousness of God at the same time. You can't love the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness at the same time. And so these believers, they want godliness. And they burn the books. That's the power of God at work through his gospel, bringing revival among a people. And so Luke says in verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You see, we think in our culture by preaching that kind of message the church will shrink. And God says, no. You call out the church to holiness by my word. And when I pour forth my spirit, when I desire, the church will prevail. Right? That's what happens. So with that, Luke tells us, that Paul's led by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem and eventually to Rome. Paul's probably thinking if God can conquer Ephesus, if Christ can be victorious in Ephesus, we need to bring this gospel to Rome. And so Paul sends Timothy and Erastus into Macedonia. He waits in Asia for a while before departing. But Luke says now, he wants us to know one more thing that happened in Ephesus that was a mark of this spiritual awakening. And so he draws our attention to how God disturbed the city through the gospel of his son. This is what happens when the world is confronted by the presence of Christ and his people. Luke says in verse 23, there was no little disturbance concerning the way. So think of it like this. The shock waves now of the gospel were being felt throughout all of Ephesus. There is a noticeable change in the environment and in the city. And that's what should happen when in the Gospels, when Christ comes down and lives among us, the light of the world, and we are living through him, our light should be shining in the world to such an extent that the world feels it and sees it. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 13. Let me just 
Just read the words of our Lord. He said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Salt is purifying, light is revealing, and when the people of God fear the Lord Jesus Christ such that they clean out their closets, they will be salt and light in this world. Paul will write to the church in Ephesus in chapter 5, verse 10, not to partake in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, he says, expose them. So, when we're talking, we're walking in the light, the world is going to feel it. The world is going to feel it. And that disturbance, Luke draws out here, came from a man named Demetrius. This is the disturbance that this revival brought. Demetrius, verse 24, Luke identifies as being a silversmith. As a silversmith, Demetrius made his living by making shrines of Artemis that he sold to those who came on pilgrimages to the temple. These idols were big business for him and for others. And what troubled Demetrius was how the gospel impacted his pocketbook. Love for Christ was overcoming love for the idols of this world. As the saying goes, take a look at someone's checkbook and you will catch a glimpse of their heart. For Demetrius, he wasn't getting a lot of checks written to him any longer for these idols because the people were fleeing to the Lord Jesus Christ, and this really made him mad. So he gets together the union of silversmiths in Ephesus because he wants to address the impact of the gospel on their livelihoods. And it's an impact that wasn't only felt in Ephesus, but it was felt, Luke says, in all of Asia. Paul was preaching, and a great many people were turning from their idols, which Paul said clearly are not gods. And they were turning to this true and living God. And Demetrius said, not only are we losing business, but the temple of the great goddess Artemis is going to soon be counted as nothing and her glory is going to be lost. And the implication of his saying this is telling the people, listen, it's not just our business, but if this temple goes down, if this goddess goes down, our whole economy goes down and you're going to go down with it. This is what he's telling them. He's saying this gospel is ruining everything. Jesus is ruining everything. And the economy is going to collapse because these people's lives are different. They no longer want to worship the idols of this world. The gospel is, disturbs our economy, our religion, it disturbs our idol. It disturbs our city. It messes with our very identity as wardens of the temple of Artemis. And so they are confused through and through because the truth regarding the Lord Jesus Christ was being made known among them and exposing the lies that they held on to and impacting their profit 
And so that's what happens when God pours out His Spirit and He brings revival. Not some weekend tent revival meant to evoke emotions or some three-day spiritual conference on spiritual gifts or some week-long healing crusade in some third-world country, but a true awakening, a true understanding about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and His power to save, it dramatically changes the entire city. What do you think would happen if God brought revival like this to the city of San Diego and it spread throughout all of California? What do you think the impact on the pocketbook of so many of our most wealthy industries would be? I mean, this kind of revival. What do you think would happen to Hollywood? What do you think would happen to the musicians, the famous musicians in their industry? What do you think would become of all of the abortion clinics all around California? What would become of the drug and the sex trade? What would become of our universities and our educational systems? What would become of cities like, even outside of here, like Las Vegas? You have to understand that the reason that Jesus says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil is because it is. There is so much evil done in this world in the name of the almighty dollar, and our culture eats it up just like they did in Ephesus. If God should bring a true revival among us, you can be sure that it would be felt and it would disturb much of what makes our economy run and, quite frankly, much of it is things that we actually support. I know you don't like to think that, but when you look at the evil in this world and the things that we prop up in the name of the almighty dollar, it's convicting. And in Ephesus, those believers saw it. They saw that the way that they were living their life in support of this idol for the sake of gain and comfort is something they couldn't handle anymore. And so they repented of it. But that's what happens. And the world feels it. Evil sells in our culture. Evil sells, not the true, the good, and the beautiful. This is why the voice of evil dominates the airways. This is why it dominates the media. This is why when you turn on the TV, you are bombarded with evil and wickedness because the more that that garbage and filth is sent into homes through the internet and TV and radio, the less that people will hear the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver you from that evil. And that troubles the world. It troubles them. They don't want to hear the good news about the gospel because it will undercut their prophets. People will, without Christ will live by the lies that they're told. And they will learn to embrace them and defend them as they did here in Ephesus. And with one voice, they will rise up against the Lord Jesus Christ because he threatens them. 
And it's not because God turns people from sin to more sin. God turns people from what, what they once loved to a love for Jesus Christ and his righteousness. The world doesn't want Christ or his people in their presence. So, for two hours they cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. There was a huge disturbance. They drag out a couple of guys into the theater so bad, the violence, that they don't even want to let the Apostle Paul go in there. Then a Jewish man goes in there, Alexander, and they oppose him, and they keep crying out, great is our idol, great is our idol, great is our idol. I could just hear the words in the U.S. Great is the mighty dollar, great is the mighty dollar, great is the mighty dollar. Great is America, great is America, great is America. Idols, all of it, worthless, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I got, I got more to say, but I'm going to leave you with this final thing. You notice in verse 35, when the town clerk finally comes in, he wants to quiet everyone down. And, and I'm going to tell this. This is specifically, I guess, kind of directed to you that are going in college, okay, eventually. One of the things you'll find in the world, you see it on the news all the time, the way that the world wants to define truth is by taking polls. So how many people, if this many people say this, then it must be true. This is the way the world thinks. The way the, They don't evaluate Jesus and the facts and the truth and his miracles, but they just want to say, nobody believes that anymore. That's how they want to evaluate truth. This is what's going to happen when you go to college. You believe in six days creation? Nobody believes that. You believe in a triune God? Nobody believes that. You believe Jesus died and rose again? Nobody believes that. What are you, crazy? Because they determine truth by a poll. How many people believe it? If everyone believes it, it must be true. That's what this guy, this is what the city clerk does. He tells them in verse 35, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing that these things can't be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing. You see what he's saying? Everybody believes in Artemis. Don't worry about it. It's true because everyone believes it. This gospel, this Jesus whom they're proclaiming, this is just, this is just small stuff. This isn't even true because not everyone believes it, but everyone has heard of Ephesus and Artemis. This makes it true. It's not. What makes it true is the fact that Jesus Christ lived and died and was buried and was risen. And his tomb is empty. The gospel triumphs in Ephesus because Jesus Christ is demonstrating his power through the gospel to change lives and to redeem sinners. If you have trouble with this, just consider this. The temple of Artemis is gone. The idols of the ancient past are gone and people have erected new idols in their place, but all idols one day, like Dagon, before God in the Ark of the Covenant, will fall, and not one of the idols of man will stand before a just and holy and righteous God. 
on that final day of judgment, Jesus Christ will reign and he will reign forever and he is to be worshiped and his kingdom will prevail and his word will prevail and the hearts and lives of men and women who have placed their faith and hope in him will live forever and all others who have rejected him will fall before him in judgment. Jesus' kingdom reigns. Jesus is the ruler of all things. And Jesus can bring revival to a city like San Diego, to a state like California. But if he's going to bring that revival, beloved, it's going to be, be through what? Through his word, by the power of God Almighty. Are we ready for that? Ready to clean out our closets and in holiness and purity of heart, ask him to bring it. Let's pray. God Almighty, we come before you this afternoon understanding as David said in Psalm 139 that you you see everything and nothing is hidden from you. There is nothing that we do in the quietness of our own homes that you don't see. There's nothing that we do outside of our homes that you can't see. There is no place that we can hide from your ever, ever present um, eyes with us. We know, oh God, that you look upon this world and you are recording everything that takes place. There is nothing that happens that you aren't aware of. And so we come before you as those who are in one sense uh, laid bare and naked before you. And we come before you, O oh God, as those who are guilty of all kinds of sins and vileness, even in the depths of our own heart and our own thinking. Not only do you see, O oh God, those evil things that we do on the outside, but you see even the depths of the wickedness that occurs on the insides of our hearts. And we know, O oh God, that we have lifted up idols to worship and to hold on to in our lives. And we know, O oh God, that our closets are full of them. And that we have been, oh, so ungodly and unholy in the way that we have lived. That we have not looked at you and your glory and your majesty as we ought to have lived and looked at that we have not looked at the Lord Jesus Christ as one who ought to be followed and served and obeyed, that we have not looked at him for the glory that is due his name and the righteousness that belongs to him alone. We have not understood uh, that he is seated and exalted at the right hand of you, O Father, that he has conquered life, death by his life, and he is resurrected to a new life, that he is reigning as king, that he is holy and pure and his name is lifted up and he rules over all creatures and all of creation, that every idol in this world will one day be brought to nothing, that every man that opposes him will one day bow before him, if not willingly, then by a rod of iron. Oh God, we know that we are guilty, but we know that because of your word of promise and truth and because of your love and mercy, that you have forgiven us of our sin. 
Father, we need revival to come in this city and in this state and in this country and throughout the whole world. And yet we know that if you should do that, O oh God, that you will do that through the preaching and the hearing of your word and that we will feel the weight of that. But, O oh God, we desire to see Christ magnified. We desire to see his name lifted up and honored and respected among the people in this state and in this country. We desire to see this world disturbed by the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us, O oh God, to live as salt and light in this world. Help us to live as those who make a difference by the things that we support and the things that we do and the things that we love. Help us, O oh God, not to be carried away with every wave and wind of doctrine and every fad that is before us. Help us not to be carried away by the, the torrents of this world and carried away into ungodliness, but keep us pure and keep us holy, and keep us faithful, and keep us focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. We ask this in his name.